Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 33, The Massachusetts Life. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you enjoy the show, why not consider leaving a review on iTunes? It doesn't cost you anything, well, other than a bit of your time, and is a great way to help get word out about the show. Special thanks to our newest pioneer, listener Melanie. Thank you. I couldn't do the show without you. Having covered the early political developments in Massachusetts in our last episode, this time out, I want to take a look at the more social side of things. The defining feature of Massachusetts in these early years was growth. Rapid growth. This was due to the large numbers of Puritans making the transatlantic voyage to escape from the repressive policies of Charles I and the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Lord. In just over a decade, 20,000 would make the journey. The volume of people led to rapid maturity of the colony. Immigration is hugely important in driving economic growth, and this was the case here. The first group of colonists had arrived too late in the season of 1630, which had led to hundreds of deaths in their first winter. But once they could begin to grow crops, they took to it with great gusto. A great deal of labour was needed in order to provide food and shelter, but the immigrants were able to provide this labour. The colony did not have much trouble taking care of itself, in contrast to Jamestown, which took years of relying on supplies from England. The speed with which Massachusetts reached this position is highly impressive. For instance, by 1634, it was already producing a crop surplus, and was able to send wheat to the West Indies, and the recently established colony of Maryland. This was soon followed by cattle and fish, which were sent to Virginia and the Caribbean islands, but this was just one arm of the trade network that was being set up. Goods sold in Maryland and Virginia could be exchanged for tobacco, and in the Indies for sugar. These could be consumed by the New Englanders themselves, or traded back to England. The bulk of Massachusetts's trade was with England, where it would ship back its furs and its fish. Fish was also sold in Spain and Portugal, where it could be exchanged for wine, lemons and salt. It's quite easy to see in the early years of Virginia the future of the South, highly agricultural with a land-owning gentry. Likewise, there is something of the North here. The commercial nature of the northeastern ports was here from a very early stage. In addition to this rapid expansion of trade, there were other aspects of this migration. For instance, where were all these people going to live? The initial group formed a number of settlements along Massachusetts Bay, but as more and more people flooded into the region, they pushed westwards. 
The sovereign body of the colony was the general court, and it was this body alone that could issue a grant of land needed to found a settlement. A group of freemen needed to receive such a grant, and then the work could begin. They would arrive at the site and then set out a detailed plan, but all of these followed a general scheme. Typically, in the centre of the town would be a lot of three to five acres, which could be used as a common. The main street would run around it, and on this street would be the key buildings of the town. These would include the church, the house of the minister, and the school. These would be surrounded by home lots, which are exactly what you would think, a lot for each house to be built, and it would also come with a plot of land for cultivation slightly further out. Each of the original proprietors was given one of these lots, but there were others kept for future inhabitants. There was also some land reserved for common pasturage and a common wood. As I mentioned in our last episode, religion was highly intertwined with the early political life of Massachusetts. I went so far as to call it a fusion of church and state. This was reflected in the new towns which were popping up. For instance, in 1631, freemanship was limited to members of the Puritan church. We discussed this insofar as the vote was restricted, but since only freemen were able to appeal to the general court for a grant of land, only members of the church were able to set up a new town. In 1635, membership of the church actually became compulsory, but only in certain areas. The religious qualification for citizenship was not universal. Only about 20% of the population were members of the church, but it is thought that the majority of the population were sympathetic towards the worldview of the church, even though they were not members per se. There were even taxes which were used to pay for the church's upkeep. In the towns of Massachusetts, political action took place through the church. They would deal with local administration, things like roads and maintenance of local buildings. Everyone was invited, but by everyone, what was meant was the white men. And while everyone was invited, only church members could vote. It is important to remember that not everybody emigrating to New England was leaving solely for religious reasons. By 1640, the population was around 14,000, which is rather large, and something of a more complex economy developed, reflecting the nature of these immigrants. Fur was a promising industry which was beginning to develop, and the forests of the region would be used for shipbuilding. While the focus of the Virginia colony was the tobacco plantation, in New England it would be the town. Here, the great landowning aristocracy of Virginia would not develop, and while it existed, slavery would not reach the same levels here as it would in the South. Instead, 
the ambitious would set up small businesses, showing yet another trait of American culture, that of enterprise and rugged individualism. But these were not the two dominant industries of New England. Agriculture was, of course, of prime importance. This is because the New England towns were highly self-sufficient, producing what they needed themselves, again highlighting the independent spirit of the region, in contrast to other colonies which would rely on supplies from the motherland. The soil wasn't particularly fertile, it was cold, it was rocky, it could provide them with food but little else. There wasn't a great surplus. Instead, the industry of New England was fishing. The relationship between New England and its fisheries is legendary, and while the industry has declined, it is still of cultural importance. One such example is the sacred cod of Massachusetts, an almost five-foot-long wooden carving of an Atlantic cod, which still hangs in the House of Representatives' chamber of the Massachusetts State House in Boston. The cod has quite an adventurous history, including an event where it was stolen by the Harvard Lampoon in the 1930s, which I would encourage you all to look up. That's really all I want to say about Massachusetts for the moment, so I'll include one extra sort of relevant detail, and then next week we can continue going around New England. Now that we have Plymouth, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine, it seems only fair that we cover the creation of Rhode Island and Connecticut too. So that will be what we do next time, but right now we'll just go back to England to look at Massachusetts's relationship with those back home, and the problems being caused for the colony by Gorges, whose patent the company had ruined. Gorges still considered New England his. He appealed to the Privy Council in 1632 with the aim of recovering this land, but it went absolutely nowhere. He wasn't discouraged, and with the help of others such as Thomas Morton and John Mason, he managed to get a real investigation launched, under the presidency of Archbishop Lord. A committee known as the Commission for Foreign Plantations was set up in 1633. Now, Massachusetts wasn't happy with this, considering they had fled to the New World in large part to get away from Lord, and it isn't that surprising that the committee ruled in favour of Gorges. It was ordered that the company charter be returned to London. Now, this was all well and good, but there was a significant problem with this. Massachusetts was 3,000 miles away from London, and it could just ignore the order, which it did. Charles appointed Gorges Governor-General of Massachusetts, John Mason was made Vice-Admiral, and they planned to put down this rebellion against the Empire. This repression did not go well. They managed to get a ship to sail to America. Yes, you heard me. One ship. This ship 
immediately broke as soon as it was launched. And so, while the Crown may have backed them, and while Gorges and Mason may have had the legal command in Massachusetts, they were stuck in England, and there was nothing they could do about it. From Gorges' point of view, Mason then did the really selfish thing and died, leaving Gorges without the money to do anything to enforce his legal claim. Perhaps if he'd have had the backing of a powerful monarch, this wouldn't have been an issue, but Charles was anything but a powerful monarch. He was flat broke, and as we've mentioned ad nauseam, because he couldn't raise money without Parliament. The situation got even worse when Parliament rebelled, and the English Civil War made everybody forget that technically Massachusetts was an illegal colony and in revolt against the Crown. Being forgotten was exactly how the New Englanders liked things. England didn't interfere with them at all, and they could just get on with business, as, to all intents and purposes, a fully independent state. This would be the state of affairs for the next half century, and it would not be until after the Restoration that England would force discipline upon her colony, but that is for a long way down the road. A long way. Now, we're in a slightly better position to bring things to a close. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please visit us online. The website is thehistoryofpodcast.com, and it is the place for extras and to sign up for membership by clicking on the PayPal subscription button. You can like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, follow me on Twitter, at historyjamie, or send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, I'll see you next time. <laughs>